family. Welcome to the Hands Up, Don't Shoot podcast, where I, your host, Ashley France Howell, tell the stories of Black victims of police brutality. Welcome to episode 12. Today, I'll be telling you the stories of Daniel Prude and Natasha McKenna. Daniel Prude was born on September 20th, 1978 in Chicago, Illinois to Dorothy Prude, and Joe Lewis Prude. He grew up in Lawndale Gardens, which is a public housing complex in the Marshall Square neighborhood of Chicago. Daniel and his four siblings, three brothers and a sister, were raised by their mother, who was a bus driver. Daniel's childhood was far from ideal. When he was in elementary school, One of his brothers was hit and killed by a car while on his way to school. A few years later, another one of his brothers was shot and killed, and his murder still remains unsolved to this day. Then, not long after that, his mother passed away as well. And although these series of deaths traumatized him pretty badly, Daniel decided that he needed to step up and sort of be the man and protector of the family. Daniel's friends said that he used drugs to cope with these losses. Soon, Daniel seemed to have gotten better. He stopped using drugs, he found a job, and he even helped others get jobs as well. But things took a turn for the worst when he used drugs to cope with the 2018 death of his nephew, who Daniel was in the house with when he died of suicide. Daniel had a few run-ins with the law, and because of the continued drug use, his mental health started to become negatively affected. On March 22, 2020, Daniel wanted to visit his brother Joe in Rochester, New York, so he asked around the neighborhood for $20 to get himself an Amtrak ticket and he was able to get $20 from a childhood friend. So after an incident on the train, which resulted in him getting kicked off, Daniel finally made it to Rochester when his brother picked him up from a shelter in Buffalo. On March 23rd, 2020, Daniel was behaving erratically, so Joe decided to have Daniel hospitalized at Strong Memorial Hospital for a psychiatric evaluation, but they released Daniel and sent him home just a few hours later. In the early morning hours of March 24th, 2020, Daniel ran out of the house with just a shirt and long johns, and Joe called the police for help because he believed his brother was having a psychotic episode. And the police also received a call from a neighbor who had reported a naked man running in the street. When the officers responded, they found Daniel naked and reported that he had told at least one person that he had the coronavirus. There's a 10-minute video of body camera footage that shows what happened, 
from when Daniel was confronted to when he was put on a gurney to be taken to the hospital. I'll post a link in the show notes so you guys can check it out. So in the video, it is abundantly clear that Daniel is not in his right state of mind. And you can tell based on his actions, the things he says, and the officers are definitely not taking it as seriously as they should have. There are even times where you can see and hear them sort of laughing and giggling about Daniel's actions. And here it is, you can see in the video, in Rochester, it is snowing. And they don't think to put any type of garment on him or blanket on him or anything to cover him up, but they do put a spit bag over his head. So Daniel is sitting in the street, handcuffed with his hands behind his back, naked with a spit bag over his head in the snow. The responding officers were Josiah Harris, Francisco Santiago, Paul Ricotta, Andrew Speckscore, Mark Vaughn, Troy Talladay, and Sergeant Michael Magri. So in the video, which is a compilation of the different body cam footage, you can see Officer Talladay with his knee on Daniel's back and his hand holding him down on his shoulder. At the same time, Officer Vaughn is holding Daniel's head down on the pavement and he's got his full weight on Daniel's head holding him down. So during this encounter, Daniel is heard yelling and crying and telling them to get off of him. For about two minutes, the officers had Daniel in this position and you could hear Daniel's voice getting lower and lower and lower. And finally, you don't hear him at all. He stopped moving and he stopped talking. And one of the officers sort of flips him around and asks him if he's okay. And Daniel doesn't respond. They notice that he may have thrown up some water and they're still asking him questions like, is he puking? And they're talking to each other, asking if they saw the water that came out of him. And you can still hear some of the officers in the background laughing. So the paramedics finally get to the scene and they see that Daniel is unconscious. And even with that, they still sort of move at a snail's pace when it comes to trying to resuscitate him. The paramedics finally come over to Daniel and begin to perform chest compressions. And this is continued until he is put on a gurney and driven away by the ambulance. Although Daniel's heartbeat was restored, he never regained consciousness and was declared brain dead. So a week later on March 30th, 2020, Daniel was taken off of life support and he died soon after. 
Daniel was 41 years old. The Monroe County Medical Examiner's Office ruled Daniel's death a, quote, homicide caused by complications of asphyxia in the setting of physical restraint, end quote. And PCP was also listed as a contributing factor. It was decided that none of the officers would face any charges in Daniel's death, but Rochester's mayor, Lovely Warren, fired the chief of police and she also suspended the officers that were involved. On September 5th, 2020, New York's Attorney General, Letitia James, decided that she would set up a grand jury to consider the evidence in Daniel's death. The grand jury, which consisted of 20 people, started on October 28th, 2020, and ended on February 23rd, 2021. And it was about 45 hours total over nine sessions. At the end of their deliberations, the jury voted to not charge the officers with criminally negligent homicide. 15 jurors voted not to indict them and five voted to indict them. In better news, the officers are still on suspension to this day. Daniel's sister and children have filed a civil lawsuit and that case is still ongoing. So once there's an update, I'll let you guys know in a later episode. And that family was a story of Daniel Prude. Now I'm going to tell you the story of Natasha McKenna. Natasha McKenna was born on January 9th, 1978 in Fairfax County, Virginia. Her mom's name was Christine Wilson, and there really isn't much known about her father. She graduated from W.T. Woodson High School in Fairfax County, Virginia, but in her early teens, she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and schizophrenia. In January of 2015, Natasha had called the police to report an assault, and she was taken to the hospital and examined. But after her examination, she was detained in the Fairfax County Adult Detention Center because she had an outstanding warrant for reportedly assaulting an officer. She remained in this detention center for about a week. On February 3rd, the sheriff's emergency response team was called in to help transport Natasha from the detention center to another location where she could be moved to a facility who could provide more adequate treatment for her. Because of this week-long delay, Natasha's mental health began to deteriorate and her behavior became erratic. She shouldn't have been put in the detention center to begin with. Her history of mental illness was well known and it was also known that the detention center was not equipped to work with her. There is video footage of this incident and it's about 45 minutes long. 
There's also a shortened version, which is about eight minutes, and that kind of pulls out key points of the long video. I'll post the links to both in the show notes. The video shows about five or six guards, who were all men, by the way, in hazmat suits standing outside of her cell door. It was reported that she was throwing urine in her cell, and they tell her that they are coming in to transport her to another location. As soon as they open the door, Natasha comes out of her cell naked and says, quote, You told me you were not going to kill me, end quote. Then all of the guards surround her and attempt to shackle her and put her on the ground. They also put a spit hood over her head. Once they have Natasha shackled and face down on the ground, for about 17 minutes, they continue to restrain her until they decide it's time to use a restraining chair. They make a point to keep saying, stop resisting, stop resisting. But if you really look at the video, it honestly doesn't look like she's resisting. A lot of the view is blocked by a couple of the officers, but by the movements of the officers that were holding her down, it doesn't seem like they were struggling too much with her. There are points in the video where you can see Natasha's full body and she doesn't look very big. Now, I saw varying reports that said she was 130 pounds, and then I saw another one that said she was about 180 pounds, and I am no expert, but just by looking at the video, it looks like she was probably closer to 130 pounds. And what really bothered me when watching the video was that it took five men to supposedly restrain this woman. So again, after about 17 minutes, they were able to get Natasha in the restraint chair. But shortly after that, you can hear one of the officers deploy their taser. They begin strapping her to the chair and they tase her three more times for a total of four times, twice in the leg and twice in the arm. This was a total of over 100,000 volts of electricity. Once she's fully restrained, nurses are brought in to take her vitals, but they're having some trouble with the machines. It seems like they're not working or they're not picking up a pulse or, or, or something from her. At this point, Natasha is no longer moving. One of the officers asks if she's okay a few times, but she doesn't respond. And the spit hood is still over her head. It seems like they finally got a pulse and she is wheeled away. And so a few minutes later, outside of the transportation vehicle, her vitals are checked again by a nurse, but she doesn't get anything. She uses the machine and it doesn't work. And then she finally does a manual check and still nothing. Natasha is unconscious. They pull the hood back off of her head and... Although her face is blurry, you can tell that she is not moving. She's unresponsive. And they realize that there is a problem. So the video then shows the employees performing CPR and using the defibrillator until the paramedics arrived. She was then transported to the hospital where she was placed on life support. 
And five days later, she was taken off of life support and passed away. Natasha was 37 years old. Medical examiners in Fairfax County ruled Natasha's death as cardiac arrest as a result of excited delirium. This term was also used in ruling Daniel Prude's death. And I became really curious about like what this meant and why it was being used. And so I did a little digging and found some information on the National Institutes of Health website. And so I'm going to read some information that I found. The article says, quote, Over the past decade, the excited delirium syndrome, EXDS, has raised continued controversy regarding the cause and manner of death of some highly agitated persons held in police custody, restrained, or incapacitated by electrical devices. At autopsy, medical examiners have difficulty in identifying an anatomic cause of death, but frequently cite psychostimulant intoxication as a contributing factor. The characteristic symptoms of EXDS include bizarre and aggressive behavior, shouting, paranoia, panic, violence towards others, unexpected physical strength, and hyperthermia, end quote. What this tells me is that excited delirium can be a contributing factor, but we can't use it as a cause of death. Fairfax County Commonwealth's attorney, Ray Morrow, said that the death was a tragic accident, but still decided that no crimes were committed and announced that no charges would be filed. In June 2016, Natasha's family filed a $15 million wrongful death lawsuit against the Fairfax County Sheriff's Office. And they claimed that the Sheriff's Office showed gross negligence and utter disregard for Natasha's life while she was in custody. Two years later, in September of 2018, a settlement of $750,000 was reached. And under the terms of this settlement, the sheriff doesn't have to admit liability in Natasha's death. And there was also an NDA for Natasha's family's attorney. And that meant he could not talk about the terms of the deal. Out of this darkness and tragedy came a ray of light and hope. Natasha's death inspired Fairfax County to start a program that attempts to divert nonviolent offenders with mental illness into treatment and other programs instead of sending them to jail. It was called Diversion First. More sheriff's deputies are also receiving crisis intervention training, and that's to help them better understand and appropriately handle mentally ill offenders. And that family was the story of Natasha McKenna. I do want to I do want to end this episode by sharing a resource with you. If you or anyone you know struggle with mental illness, you can go to mentalhealth.gov to get some more information. If you need immediate help, you can 
call the SAMHSA Treatment Referral Helpline, and that's at 1-877-SAMHSA7 or 1-877-726-4727. And that's to get some general information on mental health and also help you locate treatment services in your area. You can speak to a live person Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me on Facebook by searching for the Hands Up, Don't Shoot podcast group on Instagram at HudsPod. And you can check out my website at www.hudspod.com. Remember, HudsPod is spelled H-U-D-S-P-O-D. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure you get the latest episodes. And if you don't mind, please leave me a five-star review. Stay safe, and I'll see you next week.